0: This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, February 22nd of 2018, it's episode 127. In this episode, Christian allegory and illusion, plus our thoughts on Benny's, Jenny's thoughts on Toad Patrol, Grant's daughter's first forays into game design and GMing, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm Jenny. And this is take 2. Nobody asked what happened to the first take. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably for the best. It really is. I am completely out. You can out use of it. your
1: imagination to imagine what sort of absurdity happened, and you probably won't be
0: wrong. But write in and rate... tell us
2: what you write in and tell us what you think happened.
0: Yeah. yeah. There we go. Yeah. Listener yeah. engagement. Make up disaster scenarios. (laughs) You'll be right.
1: (laughs) Even if you weren't originally, you will be retroactively. Yes, yes, and. Uh, Yeah, yeah, very much so. (laughs) We've decided to take our own advice and, you know, reprogram whatever tragedies that you inflict on us into our past or something. (laughs) I don't know. You can't really retcon reality like
0: that. We're going to have a a take three if I keep going. How have you all been?
2: (laughs) I've been all right.
0: That's good. I am actually super out of it and will be incoherent for most of this episode, for which I apologize. Yeah, Grant actually has ah in the outline at one point. Two points. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much my sole contribution to this outline. <laughs> I'm doing uh, great. Okay. You know what? You've you've basically written entire
1: episodes on your own in the past. So mm-hmm. if you got to take a mulligan every once in a while, we're gonna let you. Uh huh. Just so you know, that's on the record now. So uh, I'm also not quite doing the greatest. I'm getting over the remnants of a flu I had last week that started with a day where I was at 103 degree fever and then Ooh. spent another day with my uh, internal thermostat completely out of whack and mm. seesawing between about ninety seven and a and 100.8 or so all day Yikes. long in like 45 minute intervals. It was great. Mm. So yeah, I'm feeling human again uh, for the first time in a while.
2: Good, good, good. I'm glad
1: to hear it. We might actually get some
0: D&D in this weekend.
2: Yeah, I (laughs) I know.
1: I felt so bad missing due to health reasons last time, but I was just so wiped
0: out. It was just, I couldn't. (laughs) You know, actually, I say that, but I've got a kid's birthday coming up. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe we might just be frantically cleaning the house and um, taking down Christmas. Don't tell anyone. You know
1: what? We, um... uh, (laughs) You just did. You just told everyone. (laughs) You just did. Look, secrets and podcasting are kind of mutually exclusive topics.
0: Grant. No, no, no. This is between you, me, the microphone, the camera crew, and I don't know the NSA. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and several hundred regular listeners of ours. But sure. Yeah, long time listeners will know this Christmas business not a new thing. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. I I yeah, yeah. We've still do.
2: got some some Christmas decorations up, but yeah.
1: You guys had the most adorable like off-kilter christmas tree too we i did. saw pictures
2: and then was great. It, it formally started losing needles and we had to to chuck it out but we do actually have a really good uh christmas tree pickup system here so it was good
0: sadly i am the christmas tree pickup system around here <laughs> oh <laughs> grant picks up the christmas tree
1: puts it back in the box and then sticks the box in storage right is that pretty yeah, much how that goes yes yeah mm. that's yeah. why it hasn't happened yet because i'm a terrible human <laughs> Well, you've been a little busy. I
0: mean, we gave you a lot of editing the last few episodes. Uh. This is true. This is true. Anyway, my Christmas shame aside, we have a little bit of news and notes and some gaming to recap. And then we have a topic that is going to be kind of weird because it's one that we could go super in-depth on. But- I don't think any of us feel super qualified to talk about. We'll see how this goes.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. One other thing, though, on the topic, we reached out to our listeners on a couple of different occasions because we really did want to do this one. I believe this is actually a topic that we have literally, no joke, no exaggeration, not the slightest bit of hyperbole here, has literally been on our topic list since Grant and I sat down to come up with the idea for the podcast over five years ago. This is true. This is part of our original 1.0 topic list, and we are finally getting to it.
0: (laughs) We are talking about gaming in allegorical Christian settings in this episode. Settings like Narnia, Paralandra, and Lord of the Rings to a certain extent. uh, And, of course, a setting that Peter has been sort of working on that is at least Christian around the edges in some ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we do have a couple other things to talk about before then. First of all, Jenny, you were on another podcast.
2: I was. I, I finally got around to doing a podcast with the Gameable Disney folks. And I talked about a show from my youthiest youth called Toad Patrol, which is basically like if you took Redwall and made it about toads, but yeah. then made it a little simpler. I've talked about it bef- on, on the show before, but I finally got to talk about it in great depth with Chris from, from Gameable Saturday Morning. Uh, We will be linking that show in the uh, show notes. Um, I did not go nearly as long on Toad Patrol as either Grant or Peter did on their respective times on Gameable Saturday morning, but um, that's partly because Toad Patrol, there really isn't that much to it. It even has missing episodes. So like- Yes.
0: That was actually (laughs) one of my favorite things about this whole thing you do. It's like, yeah, I can only find this episode in Serbian.
2: Yeah. Why Um, Serbian? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I wish I knew, but I don't. So if any of our listeners know how to know how to write and and translate Serbian to English, please contact me, please. Oh, my goodness. I really there are three missing Toad Patrol episodes. I really want to get them translated. I will pay money, please.
1: (laughs) Help Jenny get this little bit of her childhood back.
2: Yes, please. <laughs> Do a good
1: deed. So two things about that. First of all, I have listened to the episode and it was great. Yeah, Second of all, congratulations on becoming a full Saving the Game host now that you have talked with Gameable.
2: Yay! So.
0: <laughs> yep. <Yeah. laughs> yeah.
2: Only took, what, 10 months
0: or so? It took us longer. So you're yeah. actually ahead of the curve. Well done. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: It took us considerably longer, actually. So. Mm-hmm. But seriously, they're great. They're some of they our are. best podcasting friends, and I'm actually very glad that you got a chance to talk to yeah, me Chris, because he's he's such a fun guy to talk to, and
2: yeah.
0: just such a nice dude. Yep. Also, mm. really good episode. I had a ton of yeah. fun with it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Quick gaming recap. Um, well, quick, maybe for you other two, I've got a surprisingly <laughs> large thing to talk about. Well, our
1: D&D game hasn't happened since the last time we recorded, so there's that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. there's that.
0: Peter's been blogging up a storm, which has been great.
2: Mm -hmm. An excellent storm. A very good storm.
0: Storm with a little extra lightning, but yeah. Yeah, normally (laughs) we're in the habit of putting out a blog post every other Tuesday in between episodes. Peter's been just throwing them out there. So if you're not paying attention to that blog, Peter writes some really good stuff. And of course, you know, if you follow us on social media, we try and share those out every time Mm -hmm. those are posted. Or if you want to join our Discord channel, we try and post about them in there so that people can talk about them. That's always yeah. fun, too.
1: And there's usually some good discussion around episodes, blog posts, and just kind of in general. We have a nice, smart, civilized group of listeners, it's which we have civil. always been happy mm-hmm. for. But uh, for some reason, Discord really just seems to resonate well with a lot of people. And we've got some good yeah. regulars that come in and talk with us on a fairly regular basis. And hey, that's not behind any kind of a wall at all. Yeah. you know we we mm-hmm. talk about like you know getting access to um patreon questions like we're gonna be doing you know soon or being able to vote on the the quarterly topic through patreon and stuff. the discord is not locked away behind anything. The only yeah. thing that's necessary for you to participate in that is to a agree to be part of the civility that continues to go on in air er, and b show up that's it, yeah, yeah,
0: our listeners are wonderful mature adults. It is <laughs> such a great thing, yeah, so <laughs> so if you're not part of that. Join. There's a link on our website, sdgcast.org. It's right over on the right side,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Jenny, how about you? Any gaming?
2: Not role-play gaming, because my mother was gone for the last two weeks to visit family and stuff. But um, I did get to play a board game that I am now a very big fan of. It is now in my top five uh, board games that I am looking forward to playing again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called The Grim Forest. And it is an absolute blast. It, the mechanics are simple, but heavily interconnected with one another. And so there's just a, a lot of really cool interplay between all the different cards and actions you can take. It's a riot. It's such a huge amount of fun. And I'm not just saying that because I won my first round. Um, <laughs> cool. <laughs> but, um, it's, it's a really great game and I would recommend it for pretty much all ages. It's, it's a very good time. I highly recommend, uh, the Grim Forest.
1: I gotta say, you really had my attention at Simple but Deeply Interlocked. Some of yeah. my favorite games of all time, including 5 e D&D, actually fall into that mm-hmm. set of descriptors. So that's always a good sign when you see that yeah. kind of tight design.
2: It's basically a resource collecting and management game, but the resor- you've, you've got three resources to deal with. I've seen games that have like 12 resources to deal with. You have like three things to think about at any given time and that's not really that heavy a load but then you've got these interference cards where you can mess with each other and you can mess with the ability to mess with each other and it's just so much fun it's an absolute blast i will be bringing it with me um to fear the con so peter if you're going to be able to get to fear the con
1: Oh, I don't miss Fear the Con unless something tragic happens. Yeah. So, so I will play that with you when we're down oh there. Yes, I, uh,
2: I am greatly <laughs> looking forward to playing it with you. Grant, if I could afford it, I would totally send you a copy because <laughs> you and your kids would have so much fun. I with, am not
0: lacking it. for games right now because my daughter has decided to be a game designer. Oh, you've got to talk about oh, this.
2: Yes, please do talk about this.
0: Okay. Anything else on yours? Because I don't want to cut you off.
2: No, here. no, no, no. Please. That was a no, nice no. transition. Let's, let's clear the air for
0: this. <laughs> all right. So I got to talk about this. Uh, first off, I was not feeling well and skipped out on my fellowship game uh, yesterday. And then, of course, we haven't done any D&D for various different reasons, as we talked about before. So you would think, oh, I, I'm short on gaming. No, no. My daughter's decided to use all the construction paper in the world and start making her own games. So I picked up No Thank You Evil a while back. We've managed to play like two sessions of it, maybe three. My daughter is obsessed. She keeps asking for it. Unfortunately, I'm just, I'm a little too busy to sit down and I don't do well planning out game sessions that need to be that tightly controlled and laid out. So I've really been struggling with it. So we're playing a game. I think I sat down with her and like played like Crazy Eights or something a couple weekends ago, teaching her some very basic ideas of like card games. She comes in. With this pile of scraps of construction paper. What is this? Do you want to play a game I made? Sure, sweetie. Okay. Well, it was a matching game where the idea was to match arrows that were pointing in different directions. Now, she'd made like seven cards for this. They were all different sizes. And she hadn't thought, you know, because she's five, to make some way of creating a standard orientation for these cards. Mm. Which is a problem when you're matching arrows pointing in different directions. Yeah. <laughs> and there were like seven. So <laughs> it didn't exactly work well, but she was super into it. And so I was like, okay, well, listen, let me um cut you out some more even pieces of paper, like two pieces of construction paper, folded a few times, cut each one into 16 pieces, right? Super easy. Right. She took that and made her own fairly useful card game where, again, she's five. It's this game that she made to help people learn to speak unicorn. So- <laughs> My wife and I are both learning Japanese, and so mm-hmm. she kind of hears us practicing a lot. Japanese, you know, has its own syllabary, so we're looking at characters. We've got lists of characters up on the wall, that sort of thing. So she's kind of used to, to seeing that. And this is something she's doing at school as well, like recess, free time kind of stuff. This is something she's doing with a friend. So she sat down and wrote out a one-to-one character guide in Unicorn, and she made a matching game out of these cards. And then she put the English letter of these symbols that she'd created up in the top left to orient the card and to teach people. And it basically turned into a matching game, right? Like kind of like memory. All right. Okay. She did 50 cards by herself.
2: Oh my goodness.
0: Which for a five-year-old is pretty significant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Five-year-olds tend to give up on that quicker than you would think. Um, first rule set needed help. So I kind of talked with her about those. And we. this is where I contributed a little more than she did. But what we ended up doing was a matching game, basically like memory. It's not fancy, but for something that we kind of just spent a morning coming up with on the fly, it worked out fairly well. Yeah. So then later she asked me to run No Thank You Evil. Uh, And as I said before, I struggle with that. I made some sort of excuse. And about an hour later, she brought me her version of No Thank You Evil, which she had made so she could run it for me. (laughs) So your kid is GMing at the tender age of five. Uh, She was trying. She was certainly trying. She had made little character sheets, which were, again, little scraps of paper that she'd drawn stick figures on and like put lines in for the other parts of the character sheet because they're supposed to be lines of text. So she just put those in. Right. Okay. <laughs> but uh, the way No Thank People works, there are little tokens that you kind of spend to add bonuses like, you know, smarts, uh, strength and things like that. She made one of each of those tokens that we had been drawn on and she labeled the characters with names and drew little stick figure art for them. Things like that. And I can't be like, well, no, I'm not going to do this now that you have put all this work into it. So uh, <laughs> obviously I had to play. We ended up having a great time, which was good because I was I was not feeling great. I was pretty grumpy she completely changed things. It was fantastic. It was kind of a little Einstein's style quest. Something has happened. we got to go get the pieces and put this machine back together. Queen Bee's worker drone making (laughs) machine. The buttons all fell off the machine and Flew off to different countries. Uh, again, this is very Little Einsteins for anybody who has watched Little Einsteins. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. You'll recognize this sort of format, and it worked surprisingly well. I was playing a character named Icebox. Don't ask; it's <laughs> a inside joke. And I had a pet kangaroo, a flying kangaroo named Fu F U H. The H is silent. Ah, yeah. She had a little trouble remembering that she did not have a player character and that she was not the player. She sometimes was like, "Oh yeah," and then we do this. And I'm like, well, "Who's we?" Oh, right. You. You. Yeah. Um, And she had some trouble not taking over the story, but she did a pretty good job. She learned a Mm -hmm. lot about Yes And. We had a conversation about that. I think the highlight was the pirate ship, which was full of mean pirates who, and I'm quoting here, capture people and put them in cages for a human people zoo. (laughs) She comes by this sort of darkness, honestly. it's kind of dark. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It was helmed by Captain Blackbeard, whose beard was so long it could wrap all the way around the ship and so was normally piled up on deck. And this was interesting. When it was time for her to talk as Blackbeard, she got scared because Blackbeard was scary and the idea of being Blackbeard scared her. But after a couple of minutes, she figured out that she could, and again, I'm quoting here, just tell me what he says and does without being him. Mm Mm-hmm. It's an interesting little breakthrough that she had. Narrative detachment. Yeah. Yep. And then she let me feed him to a whale after I dipped his beard in honey. So that was fun. (laughs) Funny addendum to this, she made my wife do this and apparently dip Blackbeard's beard in honey so a whale can eat him is the only solution to the pirate ship. (laughs) Nothing else Nothing, oh Chrissy no! Would do. Your daughter's
1: a railroader. You got to nip oh, that in the bud, man. No. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, we t- we had to talk about that. I was like, <laughs> what have you done, Grant?
1: <laughs> she, Chrissy's
0: texting me this. It's like this is the only solution. I gave her a completely different workable solution. Like I tie up all the pirates with Blackbird's beard, and the, and her response was they escape, and then a whale eats him by the beard. Okay. <laughs> or no, it was. She escapes and then uh, somebody flies up and says, here's a hundred jars of Queen Bee's honey. You should put this on his beard. Uh. <laughs> so railroading is the next thing to learn. But we're getting there. Yeah. Okay? Don't yeah. introduce
2: her to Navi anytime soon. Starting
1: to, starting to GM at five is just so far ahead
0: of the curve. Yeah, well, I didn't
2: start GMing until the tender age of, like, 20. So, like... Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. I, again, this is a very linear kind of game, but it is that idea of, of storytelling, right? Back and I, forth. I
1: still feel like you're downplaying the fact that you have a five-year-old that's just like, you know what? I'm a GM. Uh, I'm going to just I, dive I probably in am, here. because
0: I'm trying to be modest. You know, I don't want to bask in <laughs> the reflected light of my daughter's brilliance. That's a, a recipe for terrible parenting, if ever there was one. Uh, I mean, but, yeah, but this is a gaming podcast. That's pretty advanced
1: gaming for that don't get me age. Wrong.
0: I am super proud of her. Okay. She did a yeah. great job. Again, there was no system for this. This was pure improv. We had little props, but none of the system bits mattered at all. But it, this was pure improv role play. But that kind of that back and forth pretend and that back and forth storytelling is still really fun. And that's a good way to kind of get the idea of role playing and adventuring across Well. And also speaking
1: as an adult that's had to kind of work to get some of that back, if she can make sure she never loses that in the first place, she'll be in great shape for future gaming she does.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that is true. Also, she, has, she spent the past weekend reading through the Monster Manual oh dear well i had them out because i was trying to do uh D prep and she grabbed No, i started- just
1: mean next week you're gonna have to deal with a rust monster because <laughs> she's in that early gming phase you know so oh, yeah, well there's like, that any metal objects you have just kiss those goodbye
0: well actually <laughs> you say that but also that was interesting because she's always been a little sensitive okay and she did a really good job of like looking through and talking about the scary monsters because the monster manual naturally leans towards things that are scary and bad so that heroic player characters can defeat them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean there's some good aligned stuff, there's plenty of neutral aligned stuff, there's plenty of just people, but it is a monster manual for a reason. Right. Those monsters serve a narrative purpose. She did a good job, much better than the last time she borrowed my monster manual, looking through <laughs> and being like, "Oh, I'm not scared of this. Oh, this is interesting." Okay. Yeah, if she's still just looking at pictures, she didn't want to read much on them. Mm -hmm. She did a really good job of like not getting scared this time around. So that's, it's not gaming related other than the fact that it was a monster manual, but it's just kind of a cool parenting thing to be like, oh, hey, she's growing. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Keep building that line between fantasy and reality so you can enjoy both more. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, actually, this is gaming related. The one thing that did scare her was the lich. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be scared yeah. of something in the monster manual. Right. And the <laughs> art is pretty, is scary, right? It's, it's kind of a scary looking lich dude. Mm-hmm. Apparently he's got kind of this creepy costumey capy robe. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I just
1: grabbed my copy and looked at it. Yeah, that is, I mean, on a, a
0: scale of one to 10, that lich is a solid 8.5 on the scary yeah, scale. It's, it's supposed mm-hmm. to be, right? Yeah. So that was kind of cool because we had a conversation about Boss monsters as opposed to like regular monsters. So that was kind of cool. And then we had a conversation about gotcha monsters like the mimic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And how you shouldn't
1: overuse them.
0: (laughs) She was like, well, is it a treasure chest monster? I was like, well, not exactly. It's designed to pretend to be something good and then actually be a monster. And she's like, oh, yeah, it's not very fun, is it? I don't know. Maybe. I was like, well, no, because it's a bait and switch. I didn't use bait and switch, yeah. but kind of just explain the idea of like, here's something cool. Oh, no, I took it away and put a monster there instead. Ha ha. It's like, oh, I wish that wasn't in here. Well, hold on. There's some cool ways to do it. So this is something I, I really have decided that I would like to do maybe as a no thank you evil kind of adventure. We started talking about a shape shifting monster in a house. Okay. like Pretending to be an extra chair or a rug or a painting. So I'm thinking I may do a no thank you evil scenario based on having to find like a wizard's runaway shape-shifting pet.
2: <laughs> oh, that would be great. That, that'd be really good.
0: It's hiding in a big house somewhere. And so you kind of have to do like looking around for things that are out of place. You're like, why is that lamp snickering? Where did it go? Oh, right. man. And she's <laughs> I almost had it. She's got this <laughs> weird one-off kids book. It's kind of a cartoon. Cindy Lou and the Witch don't ask me i have no idea what this is from yeah it's bizarre but it's this kid who suddenly there's a witch and her pet and the witch is like hey would you watch my pet for me i'm like this seems weird but all right and this witch's pet is this very cartoony witch you know broomstick and all But the pet is this dog who has drunk so many potions that every time it sneezes, it changes into a different animal. Oh, dear. And of course, you know, there's a series of wacky hijinks like, oh, it changed into a cat and ran into a cat show and then changed back into a dog after it sneezed again and chased all the cats out and then became a giraffe. (laughs) (laughs) Bizarre stuff, right? Right. But that same Mm -hmm. idea of like a pet is stuck in this loop of constantly changing seems like a great... Kid story hook that I can latch on to. Oh yeah, yeah. There's definitely Absolutely. some narrative meat on that bone. I apologize for this going so long, but this this is the only gaming I've had in two weeks. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, and it's it's cool and it's different, and you mm-hmm. know it's something
1: that you're proud of your daughter for doing. So I think this deserves some time.
0: Yeah, it's Absolutely. it is interesting watching her kind of explore what stories mean in a way because. She's starting to grow out of that early phase where stories are completely real. Right. Mm. And she's doing a lot better about handling things that are scary. So it's kind of an interesting thing to grow through. And once she kind of really can separate scary thing from personal danger... Yeah, you know, I, I kind of want to start gaming with her a little more seriously. Like, I, I'm not going to run an unknown armies game for her or something like that. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> that that would be bad at this age. But, uh-huh.
0: but you know, maybe there is a scary dragon who really just needs a cough drop or something. There's ways to be like, oh, it's scary, but not really. But previously, you know, when she was even a little bit younger, she would shut down at, oh, it's a scary dragon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. now we can get past that and tell a story about, hey, maybe that dragon wasn't really so scary after all. And that's a well, fun yeah. that's a fun place to be.
1: Yeah. And I think the other thing that's kind of cool, at least from my perspective, is I didn't actually start gaming as a hobby until I was probably, I don't know, 18, 19 years old or something like that. Yeah, Maybe a little younger than that. 16, 17. I was still in high school. But aside from like, you know, family board games and some primitive computer games and stuff. My initial form of geekery was like, you know, Legos and comic books, because that's what there was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my family wasn't like Jenny's where they Mm -hmm. were gamers and exposed me to it from an early age. So it's really fascinating to hear how this young mind your daughter has parses and interacts with and synthesizes all of these gaming concepts that I didn't even encounter until I was 10 years older than her or more. It's it's cool. It's kind of a neat thing to hear about. It's
0: very much outside my own experience. Yeah, it's outside my experience as well. I didn't start till I was 20. I did like a tiny bit of D&D my freshman year, but really the first functional game I ever played and I use that term very advisedly cuz none of those initial D&D games lasted more than half a session, was like a Shadowrun campaign my junior year of college, or what would have been my junior year if I had been at all a functional adult at that time. That was a very different experience. I grew up reading Lord of the Rings. I I remember I once missed recess simply because I was so engrossed in reading Lord of the Rings in the back of the room that I didn't notice the class get up and leave. (laughs) That's when you know you've got a good book. Yeah, I was that nerd. But- that was my kind of geekery Legos, like you said, books and like watching next gen with my parents. Yeah. So this is yeah. very different and very interesting. All right. Um, do we have anything else from our intro segment or goodness knows I have monopolized this conversation enough. Let's move on. All right. <laughs> let's uh, let's hit our Patreon question and then we can move on to our scripture and our
1: actual topic, which yes, let's we're going to have that.
0: a shockingly low amount of time for, but that's okay. That's all right. Yeah. So I can surely cut out some of my rambling. Uh, all right. Let's do this. All right. This one is from a guy who I think prefers to go by Mr. X. Uh, that's the uh, the pseudonym that he uses on Patreon, which is fine. All right. What do you think about Benny's? A great way to help balance those days with bad luck. A new outlet for power gamers to screw with the game. Another mechanic to clutter games with mechanic creep. Uh, consider games which roll single die versus games with a pool of many dice. Um, yeah, so this is an interesting question. I I will say up front. I liked them during Savage
1: Worlds when we were doing that Shadowrun game. I thought they were great for that. Yeah, I agree.
0: I do like Benny's. Much like any statistical resource, it is possible for people to misuse them, to award them too much, to be too stingy with them, to depend on them too much because of other game imbalances. But in a functioning game, I think they're a lot of fun.
2: I think I think they're a, a good tool to have in the toolbox. I know that the first game and only game I ever ran, I wanted initially to to sort of force Bennies into the the game because it was a con game. And so you'd get a Benny every time you made a pun that made me laugh. There you go. Because I was playing or I was running a system called Everything Is Dolphins, and it just lent itself <laughs> so much to punnery and I loved just how ridiculous the setting was. I didn't want a serious game and I wanted mm-hmm. everybody to know it wasn't a serious game. So I wanted to add in Benny's four puns. I ended up not doing that, but I thought about doing it.
0: Well, yeah. And okay. First of all, I do think there was a period of time in game design where Benny's were the new hotness and every game yeah. had
1: Benny's. Yeah, exploding dice were like that for a while, too.
0: Yeah, I mm-hmm. think we've gotten away from that, and now people realize that Binnies are a tool in the toolbox, but they are not the epitome of game design, yep. so that is good. They do help balance things pretty well, and I, I do like, especially for con games, having something that where you can just say, I'm going to spend one of my points and continue to have fun. Yeah. I think there is especially good for narrative control purposes sure yeah i I think a
1: lot of the time one of the best ways you can use them is to allow the the players to have some kind of a rationed way where they can be like hey i got an idea for this story and i want it to have some weight behind it so here i'm going to spend this thing and this is what's going to happen Now, obviously, if you've got somebody who isn't very mature or somebody who's trying to mess around with the game that can fail in spectacular fashion, but if we can run with the assumption that everybody is acting in good faith, they're great for that.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember when I was playing... Necessary Evil, which is a Savage Worlds-based superhero game, you could tell that the Benny economy was kind of what the game was leaning on because there were some weird imbalances in that. Savage Worlds is a good system, but it's pretty carefully balanced. And when you just throw a bunch of numbers at it to make it a superhero game, the balance ends up being off. Superheroes are such a hard game design problem. They Mm -hmm. are. I love the setting that necessary evil came up with and the theme and the, the high concept. It's super cool. The system needed to maybe be more carefully considered. Yeah. it's it's a system knock. It is not a setting knock by any means. I loved that idea. Maybe it would be better to do it with mutants
1: and masterminds or something though, huh? Who knows?
0: My point is I could clearly tell a difference on days the GM was feeling stingy versus uh, days the GM was feeling generous.
1: Hmm. Mm. Interesting.
0: And so that is something that I think is occasionally a problem. If there's not a very prescribed method of giving out bennies, it can kind of just be a thing where it's like, well, today's a low benny day.
2: Yeah. I will say I am a big fan of systems that give you limited bennies that you only ever get once. Like Monster of the Week, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse. I don't know if other Powered by the Apocalypse games do this, but Monster of the Week, you get seven bennies and that's it. And you never regenerate them. You get seven chances to try to turn your luck around.
0: Yeah. Fellowship doesn't have that. It has some other resources that you expend I wouldn't mm-hmm. call them bennies, but it's cool. I think it is designed for shorter games too, right? Like,
2: Yes. yes. You would
0: kind of run out after a very long campaign. You'd mm-hmm. have to make some allowance for that. But a mm-hmm. three to four episode mini arc, yeah, that could work really well. Yeah. So there we go. I, I think we've at least hit around the question if we haven't directly yeah. answered it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As for – um games which involve like certain dice pools. I I have no idea. I can't speak to that at all. If you have dice math questions, I recommend anydice.com. It's a really cool site that lets you make graphs of different dice rolls and probabilities. Super helpful. Hmm. Cool. I'll link that in the show notes, actually, because I do use that occasionally to kind of wonder about dice results. It's neat. All right.
1: Well, should we get into our scripture and then onto our main topic? Yes, sure.
0: please. I'll all take right. Isaiah if that's okay. All right, I guess I'll take Matthew. And I'll take John. Awesome. All righty. So this is Isaiah chapter 53, verses six and seven. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth.
1: This is Matthew 26, verse 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat this. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom.
2: And the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one.
0: So we're talking tonight about gaming in allegorical Christian settings and to a larger degree, creating allegorical Christian settings. So when we say Christian allegorical setting, first off, how many times can we say it? And second, what (laughs) kind of settings are we talking about?
2: A lot of the time we're talking about and we we will be bringing this up a lot this episode we are talking about narnia type settings yep. where aslan is clearly christ he clearly goes to sacrifice himself in a very christ like manner we will also be talking a little bit about illusions. So, uh, George MacDonald, who heavily influenced C.S. Lewis in his writing, frequently wrote Christian illusions into his books, such as, um, a princess nursing her father back to life by feeding him bread and wine and stuff like that. Um, a lot of people think of Frodo from Lord of the Rings as an allegory for Christ or Aragorn as they both well well Frodo basically has basically an ascension a death and ascension Aragorn goes to the uh, city of the dead Um, Tolkien didn't like that by the way he was really much very much like no this is my story it's not an allegory for anything it doesn't allude to anything this is my story I wrote it don't try to compare it to any other thing to which I say acknowledge
0: your influences dude
2: uh, yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, <laughs> his influences. influences, his
0: primary influences are like the Finnish national epics. So, you know.
2: Yeah. But the main difference between Narnia and, and the books that George MacDonald wrote and Middle Earth is that the Chronicles of Narnia follows the very distinct story beats of the story of Christ, whereas the Lord of the Rings and George MacDonald books um, contain allusions to Christianity without completely following those same story beats in order. So even though Frodo throwing the ring into the lava or crossing over to basically the elven afterlife, although those story beats do really resemble aspects of the story of Christ, they do not follow the story as strongly as the Chronicles of Narnia did, especially, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah. Um, so that, that's the main, the main, difference between those two things we will be hitting on aspects of both yeah Yeah, and i
1: I mean it's it's worth saying that tolkien was trying to do his own thing and c.s lewis is like i'm gonna write an allegory and you Uh can't stop me (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah yeah in fact he did it twice
1: yeah sort of yeah uh,
0: his space trilogy is closer to home but still extremely allegorical Mm -hmm. yeah i mean c.s lewis was was not subtle about
1: what he believed and why he thought it was good and yeah that is, that is actually a thing that I love about
0: C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and Christian allegory has a very strong tradition, going all the way back to Pilgrim's Progress, uh, really yeah. going all the way back to ancient Christian Roman poets. It's a thing that's been going on for centuries, millennia. Most of the history of the church, yeah. yeah. Allegory is extremely useful, but mm-hmm. we're going to be drawing on modern fantasy allegorical literature because it's what we know and it's what a lot of our listeners know. So just Keep that in mind. I can't say a lot about Pilgrim's Progress. I've read little no. bits and pieces, but I'm not an expert. I have read Narnia cover to cover, one end of the box to the other end of the box. I don't know mm-hmm. how many times. So, you know.
2: <laughs> that's that's what we're drawing from
0: more. <laughs> yeah. So here's a, here's a question for both of you. Why would you want to play in a setting that it ha- has these allegorical elements? Or why would you want to play in a story that is explicitly a Christian allegory?
2: It can be a really great way to introduce a youth group to gaming. It's a really solid Christian youth group activity because you can most definitely say that it was related to Christianity as as a religion and as a a story and as a way of life, etc., etc. The vast majority of Christian youth group activities have to relate to Christianity in some way or another. And gaming is a really great way to do that. I know that my mother does or did that fairly frequently when um she was uh teaching sunday school uh it can also be really great for christian evangelism but i personally a i don't think i could do it and b i think you'd have to be really really careful about how you did it so that it's not super heavy-handed brow-beating christianity is the only way to win this rpg (laughs) you don't want to get too heavily into that you can also potentially use it for evangelizing gaming as a hobby because there is still a segment of the Christian church that thinks that D&D is, the, is basically devil worship and related to satanism and so yes, if you, much to
1: our chagrin and that of Min uh-huh. Max podcast and that of Enroads Ministries and that of Derek White and on and on and on.
2: <laughs> and yeah. On and on. yeah. So if you can show somebody this is a tool that can be used for God's will to express your own religion in your life that can potentially ease suspicious players into the game more easily, um, or even just ease their suspicions about, well, I think my child might be into that Dungeons and Dragons. And it's like, well, if they are, it can be used like this too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We've got a couple more entries on here and these are kind of the ones that I personally want to focus on because this is kind of where I sit. Um, it's an excellent way to explore one's own one's own feelings on religion and faith. I've been doing some of that with Lambert in Grant's game because I'm playing a cleric, and it's convenient to do so. Mm-hmm. And settings and stories like this are just nice for Christian fellowship. It's It's good to be kind of steeped in these familiar elements and stuff, and it's just comforting i like my faith i don't i kind of enjoy being able to just kind of
0: sit in the warmth
1: that it provides sometimes as shallow as that sounds well no no, absolutely fellowship
0: is a real thing um and it's something that i i often don't give enough credit to fellowship with other christians sometimes i only think of gaming sometimes in terms of like an outreach thing or like well you know i i'm already a christian i want to go be with people who aren't. But sometimes it's like, no, I just need to recharge and refresh and enjoy myself in this company that I trust. Yeah, yeah. I don't give that enough credit sometimes. And I think this works really well.
2: Yeah. One of the best gaming groups I was ever part of, we all met in church. We even tried to get our pastor to game with us because he had gamed all through college and we were trying to make a really solid Christian gaming group. And it's so nice to be in a gaming group where you all have a shared moral footing and a shared moral framework. So we know that we're not going to turn into slavers and try to enslave all the goblin people because we don't do that because we're Christians.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: and it's, it's just nice to know that we probably aren't going to ru- run up against any real big, bad... Moral and ethical complications due to um, difference in personal religious ethics. ethics and personal ethics. It's so comforting to be able to just be. It's yeah. so nice.
0: The last thing I want to say about this is that allegory is powerful and the story of Christ is powerful. And combining those two things makes for a very powerful story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't hesitate to use a really good story for your game. Mm -hmm. If you make it explicitly allegorical, sometimes instead of trying to hide your sources, you can just lean into it and say, this is what we're doing, guys. Let's have fun with it.
2: Just absolutely own it.
1: Yeah, What? Oh, what's that wonderful C.S. Lewis quote? The, the value of myth is that it takes all the things that you know and restores to them the rich significance that's been hidden by the veil of familiarity.
0: Exactly.
2: How do you just this, pull that this one out that. all the time? Because we've quoted just... it
1: roughly once every three episodes for the entire history of the podcast.
0: <laughs> He's not wrong. I have
1: that better memorized yeah. than some of the scripture I know. <laughs> Also not wrong yeah. yeah, I may have
0: gotten a word or two wrong But that's that's definitely the thrust of that quote yeah. uh, Only one or two little words I checked Okay <laughs> Yes, I also had it prepared and ready to go For exactly that reason
1: <laughs> It's so applicable it I, yeah. is. In, in some ways It's hard to do this episode Because this is what we've been talking about For 120 plus <laughs> In mm-hmm.
0: many ways, yeah Um, how do we work Christian allegory or illusions into a game setting? Do you want me to get specific about the one I've been blogging about, or do you want to talk in general terms? Because I can do either right now. Well, given our time constraints, let's keep it very general. Although I would Mm -hmm. say that we should link to your series in the show notes. Yes. I want to start off by reminding everyone that allegory is story. When we're talking about allegory, we're talking about the story that happens. You can have a setting that is reminiscent Of things, but that's not quite allegory. That's more illusion. So just keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. And illusion is probably a whole lot easier because it's just elements that you can draw from rather than like trying to have a parallel story.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can kind of reference things and then just kind of let it be rather than having to construct everything around it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Since we had, we did run so long in the earlier part of this, I do want to get to one thing that I specifically promised one of our listeners that I would include in this because I asked for a little bit of feedback before we got started. Mm -hmm. So Jim Nanban specifically wanted to know how you would incorporate like a specifically Christian alignment system into a game. And uh, I don't think I'd be willing to tackle this question if I hadn't already done it as part of that setting <laughs> design series. So I guess maybe this is what your appetite for that or something, but here's what I wound up doing. The setting that I've been working on is specifically a D&D 5e one. And as such, it uses the classic three by three alignment grid of you know good neutral evil and then law neutral chaos, right? Yeah. I've been wanting to incorporate some... Christian themes into stuff. And I also, because the setting deals a lot with redemption and corruption and just kind of like larger moral themes, I wanted a more granular alignment system than D&D comes standard with, especially 5e, which basically just uses it as flavor and doesn't have any mechanical linkages at all. Uh So I was sitting around trying to figure out how I was going to do this. And credit where credit is due to another listener, actually. Doug Hagler and I swatted some ideas around kind of early in the, the Writing of the setting design in some of the comments on the blog posts, and I came up with the idea kind of as a result of having talked with him of using the virtue-vice pairs for the good versus evil portion of it, and then coming up with kind of a another set of six of personality traits for the law chaos part of it. You've got, you know, pride versus humility, envy versus kindness, wrath versus patience, diligence versus sloth, charity versus greed, gluttony versus temperance, and lust versus chastity. By assigning those pairs an individual numeric score based on how good a particular character is at um, kind of following the better part of their their nature with regards to that, you know, virtue versus sin. That gives you like an overall uh, numerical score that you can use to say, okay, you know, this person may be particularly good on, you know, Humility or something, but he's very wrathful. He's very gluttonous. You know, he has um, a lot of problems with envy. So this guy still falls like, you know, somewhere in the neutral care category or even the evil one, uh, despite having some individual virtues. And it, it, it allows you to kind of stick within the same three by three alignment grid framework, but still have... More moral complexity, and then the personality side of things. I just I chose duty versus independence, efficiency versus artistry, meticulousness versus expediency, satisfaction versus excitement, tradition versus progress, and sacrifice versus pragmatism, and kind of scored those the same way. I actually did a worked example with Lambert, my Claire character from Grant's game. So you can kind of see what it looks like. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was kind of how I I worked some specific traditional Christian ideas into the alignment system for a game. There's a lot more detail on the actual blog post about it. This specifically was setting design report part three, uh, the second post on the moral universe. So if you really want to see the detail of how I did that, That's where you can find it. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think sometimes it's okay to to put your game designer hat on with some of this stuff. I mean, we have all of these wonderful resources, tropes, stories, you know, parables, all of this stuff. And I think you can, if you're respectful with it, you can use it to, it's got a lot of that mythic weight that we talk about, right? It's It's got a lot of cultural significance behind it in addition to, you know, the obvious religious weight and stuff. And I, I think it gives us a really good language to describe certain things with. Definitely, and- yeah. Yeah, I, I think using it in that way, as long as you, you try to be respectful with it, I, I think it can be very effective.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. And you're right. I, I especially like your point about pulling in mechanics and putting that game design hat on. It's easy to think of this as something that only relates to story. Go ahead and yeah. me, make mechanical connections to this, right? You can, yeah. I would almost say, have a mechanical allegory <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or yeah. like a mechanical relationship between these things.
1: I, mm-hmm. I
2: kind
0: of tried to with
1: that alignment system. So yeah.
2: maybe bring it in with the healing system or resurrection systems, possibly, as we talked about in our previous episode.
1: You know what? Actually, yeah, I, I haven't written this blog post yet, but I'll give you guys a, a preview of something that's coming up. I actually did touch on the the resurrection thing. I did kind of a uh, the, the, the primal history of the setting kind of like, you know, background creation and that sort of thing. Uh-huh. I drew kind of. Fairly heavily on the Bible and then also on what we have called para-Christian mythology before. So like, you know, Milton and stuff. There was a war in heaven and one of the things that happened is the adversary decided to start making their own clerics to compete with the ones that God was providing power to. And um, it kind of worked, but a lot of the stuff that would be redemptive or restorative or that sort of thing is corrupted and twisted. So instead of having access to full resurrection spells like we talked about in our Resurrection Magic episode, that's where Undead came from. Um, I am going to have it so that the system of advantage versus disadvantage applies to healing and damaging spells from those clerics. They will, all of the dice for a healing spell from an evil cleric will be at disadvantage, and they will also leave horrible, painful scars. Whereas one of the good clerics, what they are supposed to do is restore and heal and make things better. So, you know, if one of them heals you, the injuries just kind of peel off of your body and your hole when they're done. Okay. So mm-hmm. that's that's maybe not quite as explicitly allegorical, I guess, but it, it feeds into kind of like the feel or theme that I want. And I, I'm toying with the idea of Letting the bad guys have their damaging spells like inflict wounds and harm actually be at advantage um, to kind of compensate for the loss of healing power. I'm not entirely sure if I'm going to do that yet, but I have definitely entertained the idea.
2: Mm-hmm. So in there, there are a lot. There are still like a lot of elements that a Christian allegorical setting could have. You've got your angelic figures. You've got demonic figures. You, de- you mentioned that it is a monotheistic setting. There is one God. Yeah. Um. I also know of a setting called Westbound, where the creators okay. tried to include a distinctly Trinitarian situation representing. Oh um, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Props and,
1: for the uh, the courage there.
2: Yeah. So so that that one's interesting. I'm really looking forward to playing that one, actually. Yeah, sounds cool. Uh, and um, I think the only thing, and you've mentioned that you're you're sort of hesitant to add this, would be like a messianic. Christ-like figure? Yeah. That that one's kind of critical. <laughs> to the, the whole christian religion yeah, but it wouldn't it is, absolutely be necessary
1: and see that's the problem right now is my my setting is very i guess <laughs> i guess it's about 80 percent judaism and 20 percent christianity
2: right now because yeah. you
1: don't have that messianic figure yet yeah and i would kind of like to get that in there and i just haven't had a good idea for yeah. how yet
2: honestly though i feel like a lot of what could end up being a good christ allegory or a christ-like figure could be the party itself, because we do want to emulate Christ in our lives. We do want to lay down our lives for our friends. We are called to be like Christ. And so... Having a game that could follow those beats and have the party be like Christ in that sense could be a possibility. I would be really nervous about GMing it. I think I might be able to play it maybe, but it would have to be done very sensitively. I would,
1: Yeah, if if that was how it was going to go, I'd have some long discussions with the player group before we even put pencil to character sheet.
2: Yeah, and a lot of this I would also recommend starting right from the beginning, asking how far the group wants to go into allegory. I think yeah. this would be a, se- a session zero, possibly the beginning of session one, and continual checkups throughout the game.
1: Yeah, I think I would, if I was going to go somewhere near that territory, I think I would almost rather have the uh, the player character group fill a role more like that of the Apostle Paul, mm, Yeah. where it's it, they're still an early uh, and very important figure, but they're not the actual incarnate children yeah. of God, you know? Yeah.
2: I also, while while I was writing out bits and pieces of the outline, I was also trying to think of a way you could potentially also have them be like the apostles themselves um, yeah. following Christ himself, but that could lead to a really weird GMPC yeah. situation and weirdness. And I don't think I'd be comfortable doing that personally. Yeah. Technically speaking, a messianic Christ-like figure is not absolutely necessary to have a... Christian allegorical, elusive setting. I think you
0: could also have a setting where you are, where you know that there is a Christ figure coming. Yeah. Yeah. And that might be a safer way to do it. You're in that Mm -hmm. pre-salvific period where you hope for and pray for a Messiah and there are rumors of one coming, you know, there are Mm -hmm. hints and signs something's about to happen. Yeah. But you're not having to play a Christ figure yeah yeah well and i I think also, with the way that a the setting is being
1: constructed and b the way that player characters of even the most um noble dispositions tend to be, I almost think that those events are better to have going on in the background than the foreground with the p c s because mm-hmm. i I think a very important component of that saving is sacrifice and nonviolence and teaching and that sort of thing. And while I could see doing something that delves deeply into those themes with, like, drama system or something else that's very story heavy... That is not a DD campaign. No, at absolutely all. not. <laughs> not even a little bit. Yeah. So I, I feel like trying to get all of that stuff in a DD that setting that has as its two touchstones heavy metal and Christianity is going to just be too many things piled on top of each other and it's just gonna drop like a Jenga tower with the bottom pulled out. Uh-huh. Yeah. I like the idea of it happening in the background. I'd still have to give it a tremendous amount of thought though.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of plays into how I would approach this because there are certain elements and story beats that I would want to kind of have in the setting, like for example, a creation story, Yeah. but you also don't have to play that out and you don't have to start with that when you're creating the setting.
1: Yeah. And I do have the bones of one of those, anyways, already. So it's well, sure, one in, box checked.
0: But yeah. The thing is, like, one of the reasons that the Chronicles of Narnia has such a powerful creation story is that it doesn't start with that. Yeah. Yeah. You get invested in the setting and then go, oh, and by the way, this happened. And this is how everything was set up. And this is where everything began. And you can jump back to that. But you, you have that emotional investment before you, you know, pull a token and start laying <laughs> out the Silmarillion. <laughs> (laughs) Having said that, the creation story in the Silmarillion (laughs) is one of my favorite bits of Tolkien's writing, period. Yeah, absolutely. It's beautiful, but it's not as exciting if you don't know that it's setting up Middle-earth. Yeah. Yeah. It's
2: not a very good, or it's...
1: The stuff works better if you're already excited about what happens afterwards. yeah,
2: yeah. It's one of those ones where, like, you want the spoilers. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, having that stuff in the background and, and pulling that in here and there, but, f- you know, having a story first that creates this setting, I think is possibly a valuable approach. You know, have certain points you're going to hit, but don't limit the story to that.
2: Yeah. Some of those possible story beats. I know that the Anglican Church is very much driven by these specific story beats in that we, we go through these specific ones every year. Every church calendar, the baptism by John is one you can definitely allude to that because it, it's it is a very strange story and and baptism itself is a theme in so many stories like you you can't even count them all.
1: Yeah,
2: uh, the transfiguration possibly where Christ shows up with, I believe it was Abraham and Moses on the top of a mountain and is completely transfigured before the disciples. And then you've got your standard Good Friday and Easter fair, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Later on, you've got the ascension and Pentecost, which both have themes that could be very interesting for a story, especially Pentecost, because that would be like, all of a sudden your party has this strange shared experience that this strange shared spiritual experience. Um, regardless of background. That could be really interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, could work well. I don't have a whole lot else to add to this.
2: I could
1: probably keep going for a little while with certain things, but I think yeah. we can probably leave it here unless you've got
0: anything else that you really want to get in there, Jenny.
2: Uh, Not especially.
0: Okay. For more of Peter's thoughts on this, I do recommend you check out his setting design series on our blog. Absolutely. Again, I'll link that in the show notes. He gets it's into a, a lot of series. this. Um, and he's been very responsive to comments on those blog posts as well. So mm-hmm. it's almost like I get some of my best ideas talking to our listeners when they comment on the posts. Yeah, well, there's that. And you know, not to put more work on you responding to things, but it's really cool. So yeah. I, I want to see where it goes. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. See what other questions people have about it, because it's neat.
1: No, I in all seriousness, though, guys, I love getting those questions. It makes me like re-examine what I'm working on. It gives me ideas that I didn't have before. I mean, the whole like virtues and vices based alignment system was down to a conversation I had with with Doug Hagler, who you've heard Patreon questions from before. So, yeah, definitely. Like if you've got feedback for me about that stuff, please, I want to hear it.
0: I think this is as good a place as any to wrap things up. If you liked this episode, consider supporting us on Patreon patreon.com slash saving the game. And of course, please consider sharing this episode out with uh, friends and family and social media contacts. If you like it, that helps us a great deal. And we definitely want to hear your thoughts on this. If you've made allegorical settings in particular or pulled in elements of allegory, we really want to hear about those. And I'm sure other listeners do too. So don't just send them to us, tweet them at us, put it in our discord, start up a conversation about them, comment on the episode blog post below this. We love hearing that stuff, and our other listeners like to hear about it and talk about them, so Mm -hmm. share it around. We appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. From all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nyhalor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good,
2: and happy gaming.